Uh, Assyria remains a bitter en enemy into uh, Jonah's time. And so it's, uh, it should be no surprise, right, that even after uh, God showed mercy to Jonah by rescuing him from the storm, rescuing him from the, the fish, uh, giving him a second chance, that he has no desire whatsoever for Nineveh to be, uh, to be shown any mercy for their transgressions. And so at, at the beginning of, of our text today, we, we see that it's, it, we read, uh, in, in Jonah chapter 4, uh, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What displeased Jonah? Uh, if you go back just one page to, to, um, to uh, Jonah 3, verse 10, it says, when, the, when God saw what they did, that they had how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we are so tempted to see everything through the lens, uh, through our own eyes, through our, 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 uh, our view of our, of our enemies, of, of, uh, of our heroes even. We try to look at you through them instead of looking at them through you. Lord, forgive us for that and help us learn from Jonah's bad example uh, and the good examples of others uh, and especially the, the perfect example of your son, uh, how we might look at others through your lens. Amen. When people hurt us, when people hurt uh, the people that we, we love, we want justice, uh, not mercy. It's the same today as it was uh, 2,700 years ago when, when Jonah is, uh, when these events are happening with Jonah. Uh, again, God calls us to see others through his eyes, even our enemies through his eyes, but we are tempted to look at God and his mercy through the, our, our wrath, through our anger uh, for, for others. And to illustrate this, I'd, I'd like to tell you, uh, or the contrast of this, I'd like to tell you the story about uh, Chris Carrier, who's a guy about my age. Uh, in the 1970s, when Chris was about 10 years old, uh, a, uh, a, an employee of the family abducted him, uh, assaulted him severely, ended up shooting him, leaving him by the side of the road to die. And six days later, a hunter found him on the side of the road. He was weak, he was bloody, he was blind in one eye, he was disfigured, he, uh, he, as he recovered, he lived in fear that this abductor might someday come again. And then 22 years later, he gets a phone call from the police telling him that this former family employee, uh, they didn't know who it was at the time, but it has been identified, David McAllister. And he had confessed to being his abductor. So Chris has every reason to desire justice for David McAllister, right? Even death, maybe. The, the man not only took his eyesight, but he took a lot of his childhood. What advice would you give Chris? And what advice would the world give to Chris? What if you knew Chris and he came to you and said, God has commanded me to go to David McAllister and to confront him, to rebuke him, and I know that the way God is, how he's forgiving, it would be just like God for him to repent 
for David to repent and for God to forgive him. Give this monster. I'm not going to do that. Should Chris, right, like Jonah, see God's mercy through his anger for not that for the Ninevites, but for David McAllister, and, and refuse to shake his fist right, at, at God, say, I'm not going. Or should he see David McAllister through the eyes, through the lens of God's mercy? What's the difference? We got to see this a little a bit a, a few weeks ago when Mike Hodge, a, a missionary, came to speak to us. Now Mike was, he grew up, he was forced to be a child soldier in Beirut. Many of his family members and his community were killed in front of him by, by Druze militiamen, uh, Muslim uh, militiamen. And he was forced out of his homeland because of this war. He had every right to be angry at these people. And then years later, he found God's mercy himself. And he found that he was called to preach the gospel to Muslim and Arabic people. People that he had sworn as his enemies. And today, thousands of Arabs and Muslims are reading the Bible. And they are coming to Christ. And they are completing discipleship programs. Because Mike was willing to see his enemies through the lens of God's mercy. We know the difference through missionaries like Elizabeth Elliot whose husband was among five missionaries slain by tribesmen as, that they were trying to bring the gospel to. And while the world would call for justice to avenge those deaths, Elizabeth set in, in, in place plans to continue her husband's mission. And five of the seven men who were involved in killing those five missionaries came to Christ. And she rejoiced over that because she was willing to see her enemies through the lens of God's mercy. So while Jonah did nearly everything in his power to avoid bringing God's message to the Ninevites, missionaries like Elizabeth and Mike and some who are among us today find deep joy in being called into a mission field where they are preaching to folks they might consider their enemies that is the difference between a human-centered worldview and a God-centered gospel. Between looking at God's mercy through the lens of our hatred or our anger or our wrath for our enemies and looking at our enemies through the lens of God's gospel, of his, of his mercy, of his love. See, Jonah looks at God through the hatred of the Ninevites and he cries out in anger. He, he prayed to the Lord and he says, Oh, Lord! Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that I, this is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. That fivefold list of characteristics is one of the most common ways that we see in God's scripture uh, to, to describe him. It's more than just a description of who he is. It is who God is. So uh, Josh read from, from this earlier, but if you go to, I'm sorry, uh, Dave read from this earlier. In Exodus 34, which would be page uh, 74 in the, in the Red Bibles, 
God appears before Moses, and it says that he proclaims his name. He's going to proclaim his name before him. And his name is not just Yahweh or, or, or what we would think of as what you call a person, but in the, this culture, uh, the, God's economy, that the name is who you are. And he says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When people ask you who God is, you can tell him he is who he says he is. That he is perfect in his justice and his righteousness. But he is also perfect in his graciousness, his mercy, his, his forbearance, his love, and, and his forgiveness and patience. Micah will later exclaim, who is a God like you? for pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Yet Jonah, who has been cast into the depths of the sea, doesn't use this description to praise God. He, he uses it to shake his fist at God. He says, how dare you, God? I knew you would do this. It is in your nature to be merciful and gracious, to, to abound in steadfast love, to relent from disaster, right? To, to, to be merciful, slow to anger. How dare you? God is indeed all these things, and he chooses to act the way he will in his nature, not in our ways. In this fivefold name, the first word that comes out is the word graciousness or, or, or gracious. It, Jonah has seen this graciousness in his own life, right? Yet Jonah is angry at God's graciousness to the Ninevites. The word translated here is, is gracious is used 13 times in the Old Testament and only for God. One definition I found is it is the Lord's response to the cry of the oppressed, his treatment of those who reverence him, his attitude towards those who repent, his mercy in the face of rebellion, and his leniency towards his people in the midst of judgment. And closely tied with this is the second uh, word that comes in here, that God's merciful and forgiving attitude. In, in Jesus' parable, if you were here at 8 a.m., uh, Dave uh, and Irene Lewis uh, shared with us, and, and they shared from the, the three parables in Luke 15 of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost sons. The rebellious son comes to himself in, in that last parable. He repents, right, and he goes home. And while his, he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to him 
and he fell on his neck and embraced him, and he kissed him, and he restored his repentant son to sonship. And he exclaims, let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Yet Jonah, like the older brother in this parable, is resentful of this compassion and mercy. He refuses to come in to the celebration, and he even rebukes his father. The Ninevites have rebelled against God. God is rightly angry. He commands Jonah to call out against them. And he says, because their evil has come up before me. We know from the Bible that the wages of these, this sin is death. And Jonah wants the Ninevites to get exactly that. The death and destruction that they have earned from the evil. And so Jonah looks at God's grace and mercy through the hatred he has for his enemy. And that's what drives him to flee. He would rather flee than, than preach this truth to the Ninevites. He would rather be thrown into the ocean than to, be, than to preach this to the, to the Ninevites. Jonah forgets that the God who saved him, right, that, that his grace and mercy that he shows to the Ninevites is the very reason that Jonah himself still breathes air. If, if the Ninevites had looked at God's word in that same way, at God through the lens of their hatred for their enemy, represented by Jonah, they would have perished. What saves them instead is they choose to look at those words hoping in God's grace and mercy. And praise God that that hope is fulfilled. And that not only is God gracious and merciful, but he is also slow to anger. See, Jonah is impatient. The Ninevites have earned this destruction. And, 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 and he might ask, like, why is God tarrying? Why is he delaying in, in destroying him? David uh, writes in the psalm something similar. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Yet God is gracious, and, and, and in his gracious mercy, he is slow to anger. He is patient, not only with us, but also with our enemies, even in our sinful rebellion. God didn't need to wait 40 days to destroy the Ninevites. He didn't need to wait for Jonah to prophesy. God owes us no time to repent. Yet he chooses sometimes, and in this case, to be glorified, not by his judgment, but by his patience. This is not to say that God doesn't get angry. God often speaks of his anger. In his second uh, epistle, Peter warns us of the ferociousness of God's anger towards the unrighteous. He says, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So that describes a God who indeed acts in righteous anger, yet holds back his fury for the correct time of fulfillment, being patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And he admonishes us to imitate this forbearance. He says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. 
And praise God that in his gracious mercy and his slowness to anger, that God is also great in his abundance of steadfast love. Imagine, if you will, with me right now, how this prayer that Jonah makes might stick in his throat as, as he calls out these, this nature that he knows God is. Remember, he's not seeing God, he's not seeing the Ninevites uh, through the, the lens of God's mercy. He is seeing God through his hate for the Ninevites, the Ninevites. And when he gets to the word that we see, a steadfast love, that one has just got a stick in his craw. Because it's not just any love. It is the word, the Hebrew word, chesed. It's one of my favorite words in, in, in the Bible. It, it, it's difficult to describe. But if you'll turn with me, uh, page 520, Psalm uh, 136. It is a psalm that is all about God's chesed. It is 26 verses, which all end in, in our English. Right? For his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136. In verse 1, we, say, we see that God is good because of his steadfast love. That he does great wonders in verse 4. Verses 5 through 9, that he is the God who created the universe in this chesed. In verses 10 to 15, he is the God who in his chesed delivered his people from Egypt. In his steadfast love, in verse 16, he sustained his people through the wilderness. Verses 17 to 22, in his steadfast love, as chesed, he brought forth his people into the promised land. And in verses 23 to 26, in this steadfast love, this has said, he sustains his people throughout hardship. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love. His has said endures forever. It encompasses his kindness, his loving kindness, his mercy, goodness, faithfulness, love, acts of kindness. The psalmist made it clear that God's kindness and faithfulness serves as a foundation of his actions and character. And the God who calls us to glorify him right, and to reflect him calls to imitate him in this chesed. Proverbs tells us, whatever is desired in a man is steadfast love. Job says, he who withholds chesed from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Through Hosea, God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God abounds in this steadfast love. True fear of the Lord is not when we not only tremble in the knowledge of his holiness, his power, his might, his justice, his righteousness, but also we tremble in the surety of his abundant, steadfast love, which he gives in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over into our laps. Praise God that he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And pre praise God that because of this, he is the one who relents. Relent in this context means more than just easing back. It means to be sorry, to pity, to comfort, to regret, to perhaps comes from a similar word which, comes, uh, which, which means to groan or even to roar in emotion. In Jonah 4.2, it is used in con combination with disaster or calamity. 
The Ninevites have, see, have sinned grievously. Their sin has come up before God who does not tolerate sin, the righteous judge, the God who feels indignation every day. As David writes in Psalm 7, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. Behold, he has readied his bow. He has made his arrows fiery shafts. They prepared his deadly weapons. And yet when they do repent, it is as if God sighs. And the breath of God that whips up the whirlwind, right? That, that brings ice, that freezes the broad waters, that roots out cities, that rebukes the nations, that, that makes tempests, brings his enemies to everlasting ruins. That breath relents. Brings forth not the roar of destruction, but that breath of life. When we get hurt, our instinct often is to hold our breath, right? Is to tense up, to prepare to strike back or at least protect ourselves against further hurt. One of the things I've learned in, in getting hurt is, is that the, one of the things we can do to, to deal with that is to do something that doesn't come easily, to release that breath, to relax those muscles, to relent. That can be a good illustration for how we can deal with the other wounds of life by imitating God's nature and looking at them, those who inflict those hurts through God's lens. Again, praise the Lord that he is the gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. We have to decide if we are going to be children of wrath or children of this gracious God. Jonah knows this truth about who God is, right? Uh, who, who he says that he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting in disaster. And sure enough, that gracious God has relented, and he's relented from his anger and decided he is not going to bring about justice by destroying Nineveh in 40 days. But instead of praising God for this, Jonah is indignant, exceedingly angry, and he cries out, Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. How dare you bring me all the way from my homeland, across the sea, under the sea, onto the beach, and all the way back here to, to proclaim your judgment just so you can forgive them. After all they've done to me and my people, just let me die. Most of Israel, if they, if they were there, would agree with him. Right? They, if, if his complaint were a Facebook post, imagine the comments that would go up underneath there, right? Really? Those torturers are getting off scot-free? They deserve to be fried. That'd be the nice stuff. God answers, do you do well to be angry? You do well. It's a question God's word often asks us to consider. So when Cain is angry with his brother for God's unearned favor, right, his grace on, on, on him, the Lord says to, to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It is, its desire is for you you must rule over it. 
Yet Cain does not do well. He allows himself to be filled with anger, with wrath, and he strikes down and kills his brother. Naaman, later, does not do well to be angry. Right When, when Elisha gives him instructions for, to be healed. And if he had remained in that anger and not relented, he never would have been healed. Isaiah does not do well to be angry with the priests for standing up for God and his word and his desires. And he suffers as a leper for the rest of his life. Haman does not do well to do angry. And his hateful plans that spring out of that anger eventually backfire and literally skewer him. Jesus rebukes Pharisees who are angry with him for daring to break their rules and to bring glory to God. He compares anger against a brother with murder. Again, in the, in the parable of the prodigal son, he tells of this Jonah-like older son whose anger keeps him from being reconciled to his father, from entering in to this celebration with his family. Jonah does not do well to be angry, to look at God through the lens of his wrath for his enemies, the Ninevites. God's word says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Talked about Chris at the beginning of this sermon. Would Chris Carrier do well to be angry with the man who had taken so much from him? The police told Chris that his abductor, David, was now an elderly man living in a nursing home. And the next day, Chris went to see him. What would your mood be in that car? Can you imagine the drive on your way not to see some fictitious bogeyman, right? This, this, this isn't, isn't someone that you just dream of in your nightmares. This is a real person, the monstrous face who attacked you, who stabbed you, who shot you, left you to die. You'd have every right to be angry, wouldn't you? Would you want justice? Maybe not just justice under the law, but for David to, to suffer the same things that you did 22 years ago. Maybe you'd want him to grovel for mercy as you st stood there stone-faced just looking on him in judgment. Certainly David deserved that justice, and we could not or fault Chris for being full of wrath and desiring it for him. But Chris was aware of God's mercy in his own life. And he decided to look at David through that lens. And when he walked in, instead of seeing this intimidating, evil kidnapper, he saw this old, frail man, blind, wasting away, a little more than 60 pounds, no family, no friends, no visitors. This is what Chris said. When I spoke to David, he was rather calloused. A friend who had accompanied me wisely asked him a few simple questions that led him to admitting that he had abducted me. He then asked, did you ever wish that you could tell that young boy that you were sorry for what you did to him? David answered emphatically, I wish I could. That's when I introduced myself to him. Unable to see, David clasped my hand and told me, he was sorry for what he had done to me. And as he did, I looked at, down at him, and it came over me like a wave. Why should anyone have to face death 
without a family, friends, and the joy of life, without hope. I couldn't do anything but to offer him my forgiveness and my friendship. Not just forgiveness, but friendship. Chris would remain David's friend. He spent hours with him talking, reading, and praying with him. Chris brought his own wife and and two daughters to visit him. He recounted Joseph's words to his brothers. That which you intended for evil, God used for good. I let him know that he had not ruined my life in the end and that there was nothing between us now. Jonah told Nineveh that they had 40 days to repent. David didn't have that long. One night, just three weeks later, Chris tucked David into bed before he left, and a few hours later, David died. When he was asked how he forgave David, Chris said that there was a pragmatic reason to keep from being consumed by anger and wrath. But more importantly, he said this, forgiveness is a gift. It is mercy. It is a gift that I have received and also given away. In both cases, it has been completely satisfying. There's probably an Ninevite or a David McAllister in your life. Maybe not at the same level, maybe so. Someone or a group of people who you would like to see brought to justice. Maybe not just justice, but vengeance. They've insulted you, cheated from you, stolen from you, slandered, betrayed, hurt you, or worse, hurt someone you love. Maybe even worse than that. And if you are full of wrath for them, let me tell you that the world is on your side. The world wants you to get your pound of flesh. Don't get mad, get even, right? They'll even say, Scripture's on your side. Look in, look in the Bible, it says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The world tells us they deserve it. They are worthy of nothing but wrath. But hear this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those sins have separated us from God, and God says they are worthy of death. Every one of us for every one of those sins. We are doomed, apart from God's mercy, to live an eternity separated from God, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are all David McAllister. Guilty, weak, withered, isolated, waiting for condemnation. And if God were only a God of wrath and justice, when someday we face the Son of God, who for our sins was crucified on a cross, left for dead, we should expect our fate to be sealed. We should put ourselves in the place of David McAllister again, condemned like him, isolated, blind, unable to save ourselves. Hear this, sinner, and I mean all of us. Did you ever wish that you could tell Jesus that you are sorry for what you did? That very Jesus, the one left for dead on your behalf, who not only died but later rose again, He is here. He is listening. 
How are you going to answer the Jesus who offers you an opportunity to confess and to repent, to say you are sorry for, for all you've done? Not because that apology is some gonna, somehow going to make things right. right? Not, not that you're going to earn your salvation, but because he is the only one who is able to grant forgiveness. Our great God and Savior he is Jesus Christ. Have you fallen into his hands, into the hands of the Savior, who is the gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting in disaster? If so, hear this promise. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And if you have received that same mercy that Chris did, forgiveness of your sins, the right to become children of God, being made alive in Christ, the very Christ that you sinned against, what is keeping you from giving that same mercy to others who have wronged you? Today, this week, will you be a Jonah, right, exceedingly angry, seeing God through the, the lens of your anger for your enemies? Or will you be a Chris, seeing those enemies through the lens of God's mercy? Hear the words from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He also says this, pay attention to yourselves. If a, if a brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. If you are truly a child of God, may you look at others this week, even those who have wronged you terribly through the lens of God's mercy. The God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And may that be completely satisfying. Amen. Let's pray.